want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 9 and beginning with verse 57 here in just a few moments. You know, I love an encouraging word. I, I like encouraging preaching. In fact, I like to do encouraging preaching. Uh, some people, some pastors like to do it because it kind of attracts uh, a greater number of people. But on the other hand, there's some people like myself. I like to do that, and I, I like to put myself in your position because I've been in your position. I know that you go through problems every week. You have uh, struggles every single week, maybe with temptations in your life or perhaps something at school, perhaps something at work. And so you're struggling all along the way, and you want to come to church and hear something that will keep you going for the next week. And while that is something that often we want to do, and we see this in Jesus. In fact, we look in the Bible, and we love those passages about where Jesus said, you know, come and follow me, and he, he feeds the, the, you know, the, the 5,000, and he heals the sick, raises the dead. But then there's some passages in the Bible where uh, Jesus says, look, this is what it really means to follow me. And we've been looking at some of those passages, and none are more kind of challenging and confusing sometimes than this passage that we're about to look at today as we conclude our series of messages on what, it's, what it means to follow Christ. How do we define that relationship? And so as we look at this, we understand that some people call it being all in. Mark Pat Batterson calls it that, wrote a book about it. Somebody else like Kyle Eidelman says that it's not being a follower of Jesus. It's not being a, a fan, rather, of Jesus. It's about being a follower and Jesus here in this passage challenges us to look at it and say, look, this is really what it means to follow Christ, so count the cost. Count the cost before you go. You know, understand kind of what's going on. I want to challenge you today not only to try to understand what it means to follow Christ, but I want you to come to the point somehow, some way, either at this service or another service where you say to yourself, it doesn't matter what it costs. I'm going to follow Jesus. You know, that's the goal of it all. Now, some people, you know, got to count the cost. I remember my wife and I talking to a younger, um, a younger couple that was uh, called into the pastorate, and they were having struggles. They were having difficulties. She especially were ha was having some difficulties with the whole idea about being a pastor's wife, and I just turned to her. And I said, you know, the problem here is that your husband was called later in life, and therefore, you didn't really know what you were getting into. I said, Pam, my wife, Pam, on the other hand, I was already, I was already pastoring when we got married, so she knew what she was getting into. And she turned to me and she said, oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know. And so sometimes you think you know, but you really don't know. I want to share a story with you that's very challenging and probably beyond, we feel like, many of us. But William Borden was the heir to the fortune of Borden Industries, the milk company. And he was worth multi-millions of dollars. His family would be worth billions of dollars today in today's money. But when he was 16 years old, his parents sent him off on a worldwide trip. And she, he just really went everywhere in the world, including Asia, and he became burdened as a, as, a, as a Christian. He became burdened for the people in China in particular. And he came back and told his dad, he said, you know, I know that I'm supposed to take over the company, but I feel God is calling me to the mission field. Well, his father said, look, before you do that, you have to go to college. You have to have something to fall back on. And on that date, he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. And then he went to Yale University. 
started a Bible study. Over a thousand students would eventually come to that Bible study. He went on to Princeton University to get his master's. But as soon as he got out, he wrote down in his Bible when he was about to go on the mission field and his, par- his parents were once again asking him to reconsider. He wrote down, he says, no retreats. And he gave away basically his fortune. He went on the mission field, had to go through Egypt to get to China because of training. And while in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died there. Before he died, he wrote down in his Bible, no regrets. How do we come to that place in our life? Well, we're so in love with Jesus Christ. I want to follow him so much that we would say, Lord, I'm following you without reservation. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And the context of what Jesus is about to say here, we find in verse 51 that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, Luke chapter 9 through 18 is a very unusual passage. Luke chapter 1 through 8, we find the first three years of Jesus' ministry. Now he's 33 years old, approximately. And Luke chapter 9 through chapter 18 is about six months of his ministry. And during this time, he taught his disciples what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to follow him. And during these nine chapters, he comes to some hard sayings, some difficult things, like what we're about to read in verse 57, which says, they were along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nest. But the son of man has no where to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are my home. Sounds like a pretty good request. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. We find in this passage three gentlemen that come across in the story of Jesus and the story of the Gospels in very quickly, out very quickly. We find some hard sayings there. I can imagine the disciples listening and thinking, scratching their heads, saying, look, Jesus, we're trying to grow this church. And here you are running off three of our best prospects. In fact, the first one is a scribe, we find out in, in the book of Matthew. But again, I want you to remember something as we're looking at this particular passage. And that is, when we're following Jesus without, without reservation, he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. Six months from this moment, or about this moment, he's going to be dying on the cross. Every day, every moment, every hour, every time the sun came up, was one day closer to the time that he would bleed and die on the cross that he would sacrifice everything for us. And so we look at these three examples, and already we've looked at what it meant to follow Jesus. You you know, reading your Bible, following God in his word, obeying his word. We looked at growing in Christ and how we have to grow through the adversities of life. We looked at trusting him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. We look at serving God by serving others, walking in a meaningful prayer life. To follow Jesus means to share the gospel of Christ. To follow Jesus means to follow together as a church body. But how do we finally define this relationship? Three men, three things. Number one, 
we need hands that are open. Secondly, we need hearts that are fixed. And finally, eyes that are focused. First of all, we need hands that are open. Notice again in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I want you to notice two things about this man. First of all, God, Jesus is asking him to surrender the wherever, the place. And then also what he has in his hand. What he has in his hand as far as his plans for the place he wants to live and where he wants to go. And also a hand that is empty toward God and open toward God because of the possessions that he has belonging to the Lord. First of all, notice the wherever. Now, again, this is a scribe, and a scribe, a scribe is someone who is writing down the scriptures. Now, it's not someone who's inspired, who first writes them down, but rather a Jewish scribe is someone who copied, particularly the Old Testament, and copied it and copied it and copied it in order to have, it didn't have printing presses back then, so other people could have copies of the Bible. So that's what he did. If you remember the stories of the Gospels, you remember that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes were the ones who rejected Jesus Christ and were really the primary cause for the Roman government saying, we were going to nail Jesus Christ to the cross. So here was a scribe breaking, he, he was breaking rank. He was breaking away from his group and saying, Lord, I'll follow you wherever, wherever you go. Sounds like a willing participant. Sounds like someone we would immediately want as part of our fellowship, part of our church. But Jesus was a little tough. And he says, and Jesus said, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, he's just coming out of a journey. And this journey where he went to Nazareth, that place he was born, place he was raised, and they rejected him. Then in verses 51 through 56, we find that he goes into the Samaritan village and he was going to make preparations for spending the night and they wouldn't let him come into the town. Because he was setting his face toward Jerusalem, he literally had no place to lay his head that night. What is he saying here? He's saying, look, if you think you're going to follow me and become rich, have all the comforts of life, nothing's going to go wrong in your life, he said, you need to count that cost. You need to make sure you are following for the right reason. He said, because you follow me, you may not have a place to lay your head. If you follow me, you're not going to be able to just simply stay at home the whole time. If you follow me, I'm going to, I may send you somewhere where you never thought possible. Now, when I was raised in church and raised as a young pastor a few, few weeks ago, um, I was raised to say, hey, look, you're called to the ministry. You just go wherever, do whatever, and whenever. And that's the reason I ended up in Florida. You know, I have no relatives here. I've been, we, Pam and I have been 28 years here, and all of our kids are in another state now. All of our relatives are in North Georgia. We, we have no, no family at all here in Oviedo and the surrounding area. And so why did we come here? Because God called us to go here. Now, I say that, and I know I'm preaching to pastors here, but, uh, and there's not many here in this room, but there may be some watching. You know, we've come to a day where in the last 28 years, I've talked to people about coming on staff here, and I've talked to them, and they said, well, you know, I'll go anywhere as long as it's in Texas. 
I had somebody tell me that. I know of people right now that I would recommend, and they could go anywhere, but they, they've got to stay at one particular place. This is where I was raised. My, my relatives are around here. Or this is the place I really like. You know, I really love Orlando. I'll go anywhere, God, as long as it's in Orlando. I know people, I know three or four people just like that. It's a different world. It's a different day. And Jesus says, look, you can't, you just can't simply choose your place. And he says, also, as you come with this hand toward me, it needs to come empty. It needs to become, be, become open to me, not only a place, but also our possessions as well. Because, and, and we talk about this during stewardship emphasis every year, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but he says here, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What is he really saying here? He's saying, if you follow me, you're not going to have any place to lay your head. It's not going to be yours. Even if you stay in the greatest palace in the world, if you stay in a million-dollar home, it will not really be yours to lay your head. You follow me, everything, you recognize the fact that everything that, I have, that, that you have and that I have belongs to God. Now, folks, it does anyway. I mean, have you ever seen a U-Haul pulling a hearse or a hearse pulling a U-Haul? I've never seen that. Everything that we have, we're going to leave behind. But here is a man who must come along and say, okay, everything that I have belongs to God. All my possessions belong to him. Deuteronomy 10, 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Our purpose then is to manage God's riches, his money, his time, the gospel, the place that you go, your family. And here we find that Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're going to come after me. You, you can't look at the comforts of life. In fact, you're not going to even recognize your own ownership anymore. Now, it's, it, again, it's true. You don't have it anyway, but we treat it as though it's our own. We spend it as though it's our own. We spend our time as though it belongs to us. We do what we want to do with it. And probably right now, time is more valuable to the American public than even the money. Our time belongs to the Lord as well as our possessions. Many of you have never heard this story. Some of you have, but, um, you know, I put it in a book, I think, one time. But uh, my Burger King story. Anybody ever heard that one? A few of you? Years ago, um, there's a couple of gentlemen, three of them, in fact, wanted to take me to a Florida-Georgia game. Now, right now they're in Jacksonville, but during two years, Jacksonville Stadium was being renovated, I think, for the Jaguars to come in. And so to do that, they had one game in Athens, Georgia, and one game in Gainesville, Florida. And they just went, you know, home and home. Well, this particular year, it was in Gainesville, Florida, and I'm, I'm a University of Georgia fan, and most of you are not. You vary. Well, I'm a UCF fan, too, for sure, no doubt. But at the time, you know, it was just all, it, I was new here. It was still UGA. I mean, after all, I'm from Athens, Georgia. You could throw a rock from my high school uh, yard and hit the fraternity houses across the street from the University of Georgia. That's how close it was. So, we're going to the game, and uh, as, we're, as we're going, I have to take my car. I have to ride separately because over in Denellen, 
I have a revival starting the next morning, which is Sunday morning. I was going to skip here. It was a long time in advance, and I was going to uh, not be here that morning and uh, be in Nellon, Florida, um, that, uh, that next morning and all during that week preaching. And so I, I carried my suits with me, you know, both. And then uh, my Bible and, um, you know, the sermons I might want to preach. And I had all this plan. I had to put it on, on my car. And so we met at this Burger King on um, not the, the main thoroughfare, not, not uh, um, uh, the road going up, uh, 75, but we went down side roads. And so we were in the town of Ocala, and we stopped at the Burger King. And I just said, well, I'm just going to leave my car here. I'm going to ride with y'all. We can just pick it up on the way back because now I've got to take, go from Ocala over into Denellen. And so they said, yeah, great. So I just left it there, parked under a street light, went to the game. It poured down rain on us the whole time. What a, what a great time we had. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Georgia got, got whooped bad. And um, so on the way back, we're talking and we look over there and pulled into the Burger King, my little white car, my little Honda, 1983 or whatever it was, old car, gone. There was no car there. Well, that means no car, no sermons, <laughs> you know, no suits. And we had to call the police. Now, before we did all this, I just looked and I said, you know, I, I don't notice things a lot. My wife was here. She would notice, but... I don't notice things a lot. It just doesn't look like where I parked it. Maybe I parked it over here and I walked over. No, it's not over there. So I asked one of the, uh, one of the guys that worked there. And I said, did you see a little white car out here? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, looked like a little uh, uh, subcompact car. I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. He said, yeah, it was over there a while ago. So we called the police. Police came in and they kept saying, hey, you sure you got the right Burger King? Yes. In fact, one of the guys with me drove he just said, I can't believe this guy keeps asking us that question. I make this trip six times a year. So we reported, I, we call our wives, and, uh, boy, that's just really, oh, man, this is really terrible. What are you going to do? And I said, well, i got to come all the way back home. I'm going to borrow a car from one of the other guys, and I'm going to drive all the way back up to Nellon in the morning. And I decided to call the pastor. I woke him up. And he's kind of, you know, half asleep. And he said, you can borrow some of my suits. I'm almost six feet tall, and he's 5'6". Wasn't going to work out for us. And so finally, we get back in the car. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning by this time. We drive the road two miles, and there, sure enough, was another Burger King. We pulled in the parking lot, and there was my car sitting right there. Well, we had to call the police. I mean, the worst thing in the world would be to get in the car and drive off my car when it's been reported stolen, right? And I almost did that. But I had to call the pastor, had to call our, oh, we had to call our wives. That was really tough to do that. That was really tough. Later, when I told this story to evangelist Mike Gilchrist, he said, wow, Dwayne, God taught you a lesson, and it didn't cost you anything. How'd you respond to all that? And I said, well, how could I respond? I had three church members with me. I just preached on God owning everything in your life. So all I could say was, well, God, you know, somebody stole your car. <laughs> everything that we have belonging to the Lord. Are you there? Are you there yet? Can you say, God, I recognize the fact that you own everything. And so I'm going I'm to live as though I'm the steward 
and you are the owner of all things. Well, he's saying all this in light of the journey to the cross and say, how do I do that? Because that's hard. Pastor, that's hard to do. How in the world am I going to go through all that and, and, and say, God, I'll go anywhere, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it. Well, it has to do with your heart. That's why we need hearts that are fixed. Look with me in verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, here's the problem. First of all, he didn't approach Jesus like the other guy did. He's probably listening to all this and kind of scared a little bit. I mean, after all, I mean, foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Tough saying. He turns to this man. He says, what about you? Would you follow me? And he said, Lord, good response, master. But he says, but let me first. Contradiction. Contradiction. Lord, but let me first. Chances are, in fact, I just want to share this with you. I believe it's true. But let me first is really the Lord. Whatever you want to do first, whatever you put, you and I put first place is really what we're following. And he says this, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus answered him, it looked like really harshly, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me and preach the gospel. And you've heard it said probably in some of your lessons, maybe over the years, this man's, this man's dad wasn't dead yet. Well, how do you know that? Well, because in, in Judaism, Burying the dead, burying your, lost, your loved ones was extremely important. It was a priority. A priority. And they didn't embalm. And so as soon as a person died, they pretty much immediately, within a day or so, buried them. If this man's father was already dead, he wouldn't be following around with Jesus. He'd be back home burying his father. But this man, this young man heard what Jesus had to say and thought to himself, I don't want to live my life with no place to lay my head. I'm going to stay. I'm going to wait till my dad dies. I'm going to get my inheritance from him. And then I'll come and follow Jesus. Now, his problem was twofold. One is not that and not now. Not that. I'm not going to have a place not to lay my head. I'm not going to surrender that. So what is it in our life? that is keeping us from really surrendering that heart and life to Jesus Christ. And he says, not now, not right now. St. Saint Augustine once said, oh Lord, make me good, but not yet. Make me good, just not yet. And so here's the man having the same problem. Lord, you know, I'm gonna, by the way, that's a great way to feel good about yourself. Lord, I'm going to come to know Christ as my personal Savior and Lord, but not yet. I'm going to do it, but not yet. I'm going to join a church, but not yet. I'm going to get baptized, but not yet. I'm, I'm going to lose weight, but not yet. I'm going to start exercising, not yet. Why do we do that? Because it makes ourselves, it comforts us. Look, my intention, God, is to do this. That is my intention, but I've got some other things to do first, so not yet. It makes us feel great. I'm going to do it, but we never get around to doing it. I'm going to do it, but not today. And now I just feel better about myself. I feel more comforted. I am really committed. I really am. But I'm just not there where I need to be as yet. 
You know what these things are illustrating here? From a salvation point of view, I know we can apply them as believers, and that's what we're doing, but from a salvation point of view, these people are close. They're just not in. It's like going to Canada, 1,200 miles from here to get to Canada, but until you go over the border, you're not there. It's like getting married. You know, here you see it, one of those television shows about, uh, you know, two detectives and they're a man and a woman and they ride together in the car and they're doing, they're killing people and they're saving one another's lives over and over. And you keep wondering, when are they going to get together? You know, when are they going to get together? And the tension of the program is just, in fact, once they get together, program's over. Nobody watches it anymore, you know? But anyway, they're, they're together and finally one episode, seven, eight years into the series, he gets down on one knee, he proposes, and you say, at last, they're married, right? No, they're not married yet. But then you have another episode, and the woman comes down the aisle with a beautiful white dress, and he's waiting there for her, and they join hands together at the altar. And the pastor begins to talk, and what happens? Commercial. They're not married yet. Comes back from commercial, and then somebody objects. They're not married yet. And then those dreaded words come across the screen. Continued next week. They're not married yet. In fact, if it's the cliffhanger at the end of the season, they're not going to get married for three more months. They're just not, at the, they're not there yet. You say, well, look, I've been going to church all my life. I've been reading the Bible. I've been maybe giving some money. I've been serving some as well. I am so, everybody that looks at me has to say, this guy or this lady, they must be saved. But you've never said I do. You've never crossed the border into another kingdom. It's a kingdom issue here. Whose kingdom do you belong to? Is it the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? You know, Canada, United States, you're going over the border. Which one is it? We see a heart here that needs to be fixed. But this man's heart is not fixed. His, his mind and his heart is going two different directions. Lord, yes, but not now, not yet, not that. I've just got one thing that I need to deal with, just a little more time. But the heart is not there. If you love someone, you want to marry them, and you're standing at the altar, you're not going to say, not now. Not that. Not if you love them. And so we look at the last thing, and this is it. Eyes that are focused. And as we end this series of messages, what better verses that we can look at than verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you. Again, he just says the same thing. Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at home. That's a reasonable request. It really is. In fact, we have precedents in the Old Testament. When Elijah, the prophet of God, was going to turn the ministry over to Elisha, he put his mantle upon Elisha and just walked on. And Elisha chased him down. He said, look, I want to follow you. I want to be the next prophet. I want to serve you for the next umpteen years. But first, let me go say farewell to my family. And he pretty much said, go ahead. A reasonable request. And so what's the answer there? Well, I don't have a full answer, but look in verse 62. It, it looks like it says, Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow. and Looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Now, none of us are fit. 
But the point is here is that you look forward to following him. You don't look back at your past. When you look at verse 61, it has the idea of let me first go and do this. It has the idea of more than just a glance. It doesn't mean I'm going to glance at my family. It means I'm going to stay there. I want to stay there a while. I want to maybe make some money. I want to raise support. I want to be there with them. for. Then I'll follow you. Then I'll do it. The eyes are not focused. Back then they had plowing teams where they had oxen, and you would plow the field, but if you kept looking back, and that's what, it's not just a glance, I'm looking back. It's basically this man's trying to plow a field by looking backward. Backward at his past. Backward at where he really wanted to be. And the furrows, of course, run crooked. No man who puts his hands to a plow looks back. And here we find eyes that need to be focused. That Jesus Christ would be the priority of our life, not looking back. You've heard the story of Cortez, 1519, he landed in the Americas and he burned all of his ships. Now it may be folklore, but he burned all the ships. That's the story. He said, we're not going back. We're here and we're not going back at all. Ended the past. Here's what Jesus is talking about. It's not saying don't love your family. In fact, it talks in the Bible that we need to love our family. It needs to be, we need to serve our family. It's all throughout the scripture. There's no contradiction here. We don't love our family less. He's just saying, you need to love me more. Your heart needs to be toward me. Your eyes need to be focused on me. You don't need to be like Peter in the sea. And he looks at the waves that begins to sink. But focused upon Jesus Christ and what he has for our life. William Borden, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. What does all that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? As, as the disciples, the, the 12, you know, John, Peter, Matthew, Thaddeus, Judas, they were walking along. What they were learning, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Very first of Luke 9, he's going to be able to teach them all through verse, chapter 18 in the next six months. What does it mean? You know those vows, for better, for worse, say it with me, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We say those things, and I think that we think we know what we're getting into, and we do, but we don't. We say that, and we know what marriage generally is about, but there's a point in time that we say to ourselves, subconsciously or consciously, it doesn't matter what it means. I love this person enough. I love this person enough to fulfill those vows. Young pastor tells a story in one of his books. He said that he was a young, much younger pastor, first time he had ever visited a cancer patient in the hospital. He walks in, of course, the smells down the corridor, and... Um, just the sadness around. And he walks into this man's room and his wife is there. And they're visiting with him. And he's near to the point, within a week or so, of probably passing away. 
and he has an accident. They know what that means. They leave the room for a moment. But they look back into the window there, the window, and she, they watched her clean him up. Not married, married very long themselves. They looked at one another. So that's what that means. To love, cherish, sickness and health, till death do us. That's what that means. As Jesus was walking along and the 12 was there, we, we don't have an account of this, but I can speculate. They're looking and hearing what Jesus had to say, and the first man walked away, and the second man walked away, and the third man walked away. Hands that are open, hearts that are fixed, eyes that are focused. Hmm. So that's what that means. That's what that means to follow Jesus Christ. Now, there's reward to it. There's grace to it. In fact, I want to read you one of my favorite verses, a word of encouragement as we close. And it's found in the Old Testament and 2 Chronicles. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is completely his. That's what God wants for you. But our heart belongs there first. So that's what that means. I don't be less than your friend is to say, oh, it's just going to be all great. It's going to be all wonderful. There's going to be no trials in life. Listen, we don't live in heaven here. Now, there's going to be less trials because you're not going to sin as much. But you're still going to do disobedient things. God's not calling us here to complete obedience. That's impossible. He's calling us to complete commitment. Follow me on the path. Would you do that today? With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you've never received Christ into your heart, you're not sure really that you, he's really Lord of your life. You can't really say that your hands have ever been open, your heart fixed, your eyes focused. Would you pray with me right now that you would receive Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life? Whether you're here, watching at home, I would invite you right now to pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your love. That you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. And in the light of that trip, that journey to the cross, he looks into my heart and he says, follow me. And that's what I want to do. I want to cross into the border of a new kingdom. I want to say I do to Jesus this morning. I invite you into my heart, Lord Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and guide my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.